uh, for that overly generous introduction. Um, and thanks for applauding, because um, I might not get any at the end, I suspect. Um, let's see if I can get this to work. Uh, yes, that's the University of Luxembourg. <laughs> so as you can see, it's very similar to Oxford, just you know, a few hundred years younger. Uh, anyway, I am meant to be speaking about immunity from execution of military and cultural goods. Um, so first of all, the confession. I'm actually only really going to talk about immunity from execution of state-owned cultural property. Uh, and that's for two reasons. The first of which is time. Uh, and the second is, I don't think the issues relating to state-owned military, state military property are as interesting. Uh, but time permitting, I will hopefully be able to say something about how the law treats both types of property uh, towards the end of my uh, presentation. So anyway, uh, I like art. I like visiting museums, art galleries uh, and exhibitions. Maybe some of you do too. Um, and if you do, you'll have noticed the prevalence of blockbuster exhibitions displaying artworks from collections around the world. So um, take the recently ended exhibition. I was very annoyed actually to discover it had ended this weekend. Uh, Degas to Picasso, Creating Modernism in France at the Asmolean. Uh, that brought over 100 artworks uh, from the collection of Ursula and Stanley R. Johnson in Chicago to Oxford. Uh, take, the, um, take the current Michelangelo and Sebastiano exhibition at the National Gallery in London, um, which includes Michelangelo's Risen Christ uh, on loan from the Church of San Vincenzo Martire in Bassano Romano, um, or the forthcoming uh, Impressionists in London exhibition at Tate Britain, which will bring works from collections of a number of foreign museums to London. So art matters. It's popular, as the numbers attending such exhibitions show. Uh, opportunities to loan works abroad provide museums and galleries, and sometimes their national governments, with opportunities not only to publicise their collections, uh, but also to raise revenue, not only through loan fees, uh, but also through shares in the proceeds of... Um, of the sale of tickets, catalogues, posters, reproductions, uh, and other souvenirs. And because art is uh, admired and coveted, it's expensive. Uh, I said, I, I was told I have to have at least one picture in this presentation. Uh, so there's a picture. That is the most expensive ever painting. Paul Gauguin's Nafea Far Ipiopo, When Will You Marry? It was sold for 300 million US dollars uh, in December uh, 2015. The most expensive old master painting is this one, which I think, frankly, is a bit of 17th century soft porn. Um, but it is uh, Peter Paul Rubens' lot and his daughters. That went for 58 million US dollars uh, in July 2016. But of course, art also arouses emotions uh, beyond stupefaction at these sky-high prices. Uh, it's a source of national prestige and identity often regardless of whether the particular artwork or collection originates uh, in the country in which it's now located, uh, which is, of course, one reason why states are often quite reluctant to restitute artworks. I won't mention the Elgin marbles here. Um, <laughs> and private owners also uh, often develop strong emotional bonds uh, with their art collections, hence the persistent and continuing of efforts by victims of spoliation uh, and their heirs to recover artworks taken from them. Now, we all know recent years have seen 
uh, increasing efforts to use state property abro located abroad, temporarily usually, to satisfy state debts owed to private persons. State-owned cultural property has not been exempt from such targeting. Uh, artworks loaned abroad, obviously they're, they're, they're high value and they're visible, they're on public display, so they're easy targets and sometimes it's thought that seizing them, uh, will, because it will be embarrassing, can serve as, as a lever to, to get um, uh, damages, a damages award or a, a judgment in force. Now, such efforts have been most controversial when, when undertaken by so-called vulture funds. Companies have brought up, bought up state debts, state external debt at a discount, and then brought legal proceedings to recover the full amount. But we've also seen attempts to enforce some um, arbitration awards through such measures. And as regards state-owned cultural property, we've also seen efforts to seize particular artworks on the grounds that they've come into state hands as a result of theft from or the spoliation of the original owners. Now, um, we all know immunity from jurisdiction and immunity from execution are distinct. Uh, I'm only going to address issues of immunity from jurisdiction uh, tangentially. Uh, suffice to say, though, it is important to recall that just because a state uh, person has a court judgment or an arbitral award against the state doesn't necessarily mean that she can enforce it against uh, state-owned property. Now, Article, eight, Article 18 of the... We, ha we have a, a 2004 United Nations Convention on the Jurisdiction and Immunities of States and their property. Uh, Article 18, uh, which deals with pre-judgment measures of constraint, provides that state-owned property is uh, immune uh, from such measures, except in very limited circumstances. Uh, and then Article 19, which covers post-judgment uh, measures of constraint, which hopefully is here, yes, good, uh, sets out the rule that, and I quote, no post-judgment measures of constraint uh, against property of a state may be taken in connection with a proceeding before a court of another state unless and except to the extent that A, the state has expressly consented to the taking of such measures, waiver, uh, B, the state has allocated or earmarked property for the satisfaction of the claim, which is the object of that proceeding, or C, it has been established that the property is specifically in use or intended for use by the state rather than government non-commercial purposes and is in the territory of the state of the forum. So um, three exceptions there. However, if you go on and you look at Article 21, of the convention, it, that provides that certain categories of state property are presumed not to be property specifically in use or intended for use by the state for other than government non-commercial purposes. And they include, and I've got them there, property of a military character or used or intended for use in the performance of military functions, property forming part of the cultural heritage of the state and not placed or intended to be placed on sale and property forming part of an exhibition of objects of scientific, cultural or historical interest and not placed or intended to be placed uh, on sale. I'll concentrate on Articles 21, 1, D and E. In such cases, uh, in order to execute against such property, a judgment debtor would need either to show the existence of a valid waiver of immunity from execution, Article 19A, or that the particular property has been allocated or earmarked for the satisfaction of the judgment debt, Article uh, 19b. In practice, of course, such earmarking does not occur. 
Um, so uh, waiver is the only route to execution. That waiver must include uh, uh, a waiver of immunity from execution, a waiver of immunity from jurisdiction alone will not suffice. Now, the problem, of course, with the 2004 UN Convention is it's only been ratified by 21 states and it's not in force. Now, in the jurisdictional immunities case, the ICJ refused to rule on whether all aspects of Article 19 <coughs> reflected general international law, but the court, court did hold, hopefully, uh, that there's at least one condition that has to be satisfied before any measure of constraint may be taken against property belonging to a foreign state, that the property in question must be in use for an activity not pursuing government non-commercial purposes, or that the state which owns the property has expressly consented for the taking of measure of constraint, or that the state has allocated the property in question for the satisfaction of a judicial claim. Now, the court then went on to cite various decisions of the German, Swiss, UK and Spanish Spanish apex courts, one can also, uh, in support of the conclusion, and one can also uh, refer to Section 13 of the UK State Immunity Act and uh, Section 1611 of the US Sovereign Immunities Act. Uh, what the problem is, what none of those judgments and neither of those statutes do, is specifically address the, whether the categories of goods of state-owned cultural property described in Articles 21, 1D and E would, absent the presumption contained in that provision, uh, be viewed as property uh, used, or intended, used or intended for use for governmental rather than commercial uh, purposes. Or to put it another way, to what extent does Article 21 in this respect codify or seek to develop uh, customary international law? So in the Oxford commentary on... Uh, the convention. Chester Brown and Roger O'Keefe suggest that it may be that this provision is an example of progressive development. Now, I think there are two, there are at least two reasons for thinking that to be the case. The first, and the, if you like, the fundamental reason, is that there are good arguments for seeing the loan or exhibition of uh, the loan of artworks or the exhibition of uh, artworks as a commercial or at least not a governmental activity. Uh, in the first instance, uh, as, show, as I hope I showed by the examples I gave, such loans can be made by different types of persons, private collectors, uh, private associations, as well as uh, state uh, entities. So the, the state does not have a monopoly uh, on the ownership of art. And secondly, such loans, of course, can be a source of revenue as well as of you know, prestige or whatever else. So as a consequence, we've seen that US courts in particular, uh, have on a number of occasions held that loans of artworks and associated activities uh, can fall within the commercial activity exception to state immunity. Sorry, I found a mistake in my hand uh, uh, from jurisdiction in, in section 1605A5 of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which hopefully is that one which says that a foreign state shall not be immune from the jurisdiction of courts of the United States in any case in which the action is based upon a commercial activity carried on in the United States by the foreign state or upon an act performed in the United States in connection with a commercial activity of a foreign state elsewhere or upon an act outside the territory of the United States in connection with a commercial activity of the foreign state elsewhere and that act causes a direct 
effect in the United States. Now, an example of that is um, in uh, Malowitz and city of Amsterdam, their district judge Collier ruled that it's, uh, and that concerned um, a number of Malowitz paintings loaned to uh, museums uh, in the United States. It's clear, said the judge, that the city of Amsterdam engaged in commercial activities when it loaned the works to museums in the US. Uh, there's nothing sovereign about the act of lending art pieces, even though the pieces themselves might belong to a sovereign. Loans between and among museums, both private and public, uh, occur around the world regularly. And, and the judge went on to state, the parties appear to agree that this particular loan was for purely educational and cultural purposes. Uh, certainly, uh, the loan was... Uh, I, I'll skip that. But it says, um, the distinction Amsterdam wishes the court to draw would depend on the purpose of the loan. Uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act itself dooms the distinction because the court is not to consider the purpose of the activity. Uh, now, the judge's decision there was based solely, as US courts tend to do, solely on the applicable US uh, legislation, which prohibits resort uh, to the purpose rather than the nature of the transaction uh, and distinguishes between commercial and sovereign activities on the basis uh, that the latter category of acts are acts that only states can perform. Article 2.2 of the UN Convention does permit the purpose as well as the nature of a transaction to be taken into account when determining whether it's commercial or not, so other states' courts might decide the issue differently. Uh, but the US jurisprudence, at the least, argues that the matter is uncertain. And if the loan or exhibition of artworks is a commercial activity, uh, then it would seem to follow uh, that well, the works loaned or exhibited are being used by the state for other than government non-commercial purposes and are consequently not immune from execution. There's another reason, a number for, for, for thinking that uh, state-owned cultural property might not be immune from execution, and that's that a number of states, and this begins with the US Immunity from Judicial Seizure Act in 1965, have enacted anti-seizure legislation designed specifically to prevent the seizure of artworks loaned from abroad. Now, these acts usually re require prior governmental approval for the protect <coughs> to permit the protection to be activated. But once approval is, is, is granted, then the property is immune from... Uh, the artworks loaned are immune from seizure. In addition uh, to the US, at least 10 other states have adopted such legislation. <coughs> uh, the list I have is Canada, Australia, France, Ireland, Germany, Austria, Belgium, Switzerland, Israel and the UK. The UK in, in 2007 with the Courts, Tribunals and Jurisdiction Act, if I remember, um, or in that. It's, it's a fairly portmanteau act. Uh, now, such legislation might fought only to be meaningful if immunity from execution does not in general apply to state-owned cultural property when it's loaned or exhibited abroad. What would be the point of it otherwise? Now, to this one might say that such legislation uh, is, is broader. It can protect not only state, but also privately owned, loaned artworks. Uh, so such an implication should not be read. Uh, but again, at the least, the existence of such legislation injects uncertainty into the matter. Recent developments, however, I think, have somewhat clarified matters. I'm going to mention just three. 
Uh, the first is the 2013 Council of Europe Declaration on Jurisdictional Immunities of State-Owned Cultural Property. Uh, the second is the uh, and the, the the second two the other two are the French Loi Sapin-Deux and the U.S. Uh, Foreign Cultural Exchange, the splendidly named Foreign Cultural Exchange Jurisdictional Immunity Clarification Act, both of which were adopted at the end of last year. <laughs> now, uh, let's look at the Declaration on Jurisdictional Immunities of State-Owned Cultural Property. This was presented to the 45th meeting of the Committee of Legal Advisers on Public International Law of the Council of Europe in March 2013, where am I now? Uh, there we are. Um, the, the initiative was that of the Czech Republic, supported by Austria and the Netherlands. Why then? Well, it was a result, it was a consequence of an attempt by the beneficiary of an arbitral award against the Czech Republic. Uh, they're still trying to, but there's been a lot of litigation by this, um, uh, to enforce the award through the Austrian courts specifically through a seizure in 2011 of a number of artworks lent by two Czech national institutions for an exhibition in uh, Vienna. Now, those of you who've been listening closely will realise that Austria has and had anti-seizure legislation, but it hadn't been activated in this case. Now, the initial decision by the, Vien the Viennese district, the Vienna District Court, allowing seizure of the works was subsequently reversed by the same court on the ground that customary international law, as reflected in the relevant provisions of the UN Convention, to which Austria is a party, but which is obviously not uh, yet in force, prohibited the subjecting of the works to any form of constraint. Uh, and an appeal to the Austrian Supreme Court to overturn that decision was unsuccessful. Nonetheless, the, the saga seems to have concentrated minds. Now, the declaration has now been signed by 19 member states, of the Council of Europe, I won't go through them, uh, and apparently others are expected to do so soon. It's described as a legally non-binding document expressing a common understanding on opinio juris, um, and it describes the UN Convention as, as, as a codification of customary international law and states that in accordance with the Convention and with customary international law, uh, property of a state forming part of its cultural heritage or its archives or forming part of an exhibition of objects of scientific, cultural or historical interest are not placed or intended to be placed on sale, cannot be subject to any measure of constraint such as attachment, arrest or execution in another state. So it seems to be, take, seems to be following uh, what Articles 21.1d uh, and e of the Convention say. And, and, and therefore... Second paragraph, quite interesting. Such measures of constraint can be taken can only be taken if immunity is expressly waived for a clearly specified property by the competent national authorities of the state owning the property, or if the property has been allocated or earmarked by that state for the satisfaction of the claim, which is in, which is the object of the proceedings concerned. Now I'll return to the second paragraph uh, in a moment. Uh, but from the first paragraph, as I say, it's clear that the declaration, uh, I think it's clear anyway, that the declaration reflects its signatory's belief that Articles 21, uh, 1D and E of the UN Convention reflect customary international law, that that's what customary international law requires. Uh, the Loi Sapin uh, I won't give you its full name, it's again quite long, 
uh, it's, port, it's French portmanteau legislation, but one of the things it does is insert into the French Civil Procedure Code new provisions on the enforcement of decisions against foreign states, which is really an area of law that's pretty much been based uh, on judgments of the Cour de Cassation previously. Now, those new provisions reflect Articles 18, 19 and 21 of the UN Convention, so that the immunity from execution of state-owned cultural property as set out in Article 21, 1D and E of the Convention is now incorporated into French law. Now, France, of course, has been a party to the UN Convention since 2011, but again, just to reiterate, the treaty hasn't entered into force, so you know, France is, is only really presently obliged not to act in a way that would defeat the treaty's object and purpose. It's also a signatory to the Council of Europe Declaration on Jurisdictional Immunities of state-owned cultural property. So I think you can make a reasonable argument that the incorporation of the relevant provisions of the UN Convention into French law at this time can be seen as an example of state practice complementing France's previous expression of opinion Euros concerning the rules uh, customary nature. France is quite important. It's got quite a lot of state-owned cultural property and it lends it uh, quite a bit. Finally, uh, the US... The US Foreign Cultural Exchange Jurisdictional Immunity Clarification Act, uh, also approved in December last year. Uh, the act is concerned to ensure that foreign states' activities associated with the temporary um, exhibition or display of, of, of loaned artworks uh, covered by the provisions of the 1965 Immunity from Judicial Seizure Act, the US anti-seizure legislation, do not, except in limited circumstances, fall within the commercial activity exception to state immunity from jurisdiction. I've already mentioned that with regards to Malens uh, and uh, Amsterdam, and there are a whole series of cases on that. Now, I think this is a rather double-edged uh, piece of legislation. It only applies in situations, and this is what, what, what's required for, uh, active, for permitting, for activating uh, the provisions, the anti-seizure provisions of the immunity uh, uh, in, in the 1965 Act, it only applies to situations when the US president has determined that such work is culturally significant and its temporary ex exhibition or display is in the national interest. Um, so you might say, well, is this about grace and comedy rather than about law? Um, uh, because other exhibitions or loans of foreign artwork, which could potentially include state-owned cultural property uh, are unaffected. However, in addition, you have to, I think it's helpful to look at the context in which the legislation was finally passed. This has been, you know, there's been proposals to legislate in this way for, for some years. Um, and the situation was that, that, that Russia has been refusing to loan artworks to US institutions in response to the actions of the plaintiffs uh, in litigation concerning the Shinnison collection of Judaica. And US institutions in response have, have, have been saying that they will not uh, lend items, lend artworks for uh, exhibition in Russia. Now you might say, well, doesn't that, 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 that suggest that the 2016 Act reflects a political judgment rather than a legal opinion on whether loans of state-owned cultural property or commercial transactions and whether it would seem to follow uh, such property should be seen as in use or intended for use in commercial purposes. Um, 
But even I think even that conclusion admits that the US, uh, if, if you take that view, what you're admitting is the US is responding legislatively to Russia's objections, which do appear, do appear to be based on that state's view of what international law on state immunity requires. So I think in consequence, it may be that the better view is that the passing of the Foreign Cultural Exchange Jurisdictional Immunity Clarification Act uh, shows that, well, one, the US is, is a bit out of step on the matter, but secondly, as a result, it's modified its leg national legislation uh, to bring it closer to, if not entirely, uh, in compliance with, with what is the norm. So um, to conclude that part of the presentation, I would say that these developments do argue that the provisions on the immunity of state-owned cultural property set out in Articles 21.1d and e of the UN Convention now reflect customary international law, even if they did not do so prior to the Convention's um, adoption. So the, you know, it may be that the Convention had, had a crystallising effect on the law, and of course that's particularly important as the Convention is not in force and unlikely to come into force in the near future. So customary law is all we have on the subject. Now, you might say, why? Why is this the case? Now, it might be argued that this reflects the development of international law relating to cultural property or cultural heritage. Uh, I don't really agree. Uh, I, think, and I, I, or I think the same or similar motives may have spurred de both developments, but I do think they are distinct. I say that firstly because... The definitions in the relevant treaties, the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the Event of Armed Conflict, the 1970 Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Import, Export and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Property, the 1995 UNITWA Convention on Stolen or Illegally Exported Cultural Objects differ, um, the the differ from those in the 2004 Convention. But more fundamentally, I think there is, there is a tension, which is largely uh, submerged but exists nonetheless, uh, between international cultural heritage rules, which push for the restitution of cultural property to its original owners, particularly in cases of spoliation, uh, and state immunity rules, which of course act uh, specifically to prevent the prosecution and enforcement of such claims. Uh, time, however, uh, prevents, you will may be relieved to know longer consideration of this issue which is one that i'm only uh, beginning properly to delve into so i'll move swiftly on uh, to consider the implications of the second paragraph of the declaration on jurisdictional immunity of states owned cultural property now just to recap the paragraph states uh, that measures of constraint can only be taken if immunity is expressly waived for a clearly specified property by the competent national authorities of the state owning the property. I think that's really interesting. Um, if we go back to Article 19 of the UN Convention, that only refers to the express consent of the state. It doesn't require, doesn't state that immunity from ex that the waiver that the immunity from execution both be be both expressly and specifically waived. Um, and in fact, if you look, uh, it says that. It, so it doesn't require that the property with regard to which immunity is waived is clearly specified, clearly specified. Indeed, the wording of the declaration is really quite strong. It refers to a clearly specified property. 
which would appear to apply that the reference to a particular category of state-owned property alone would not su suffice to, uh, to meet the criterion. So we're getting perilously close here, I think, to assimilating waiver with earmarking or allocation of specific property for the satisfaction of a judgment or award. And this is where my discussion of immunity from execution and state-owned cultural property ties in with the issue of the immunity from execution of state-owned military assets. Um, so I said I'd talk about the uh, RAR Libertad case very briefly, and I'll do that now. Um, I think there's little disagreement that state-owned military assets are generally immune from execution. They're quintessential examples of property used for government non-commercial purposes. Uh, but as with state-owned cultural property, attempts have been made to execute against state-owned military assets on the basis of contractual waivers. And the most famous example of that it was the arrest of the Argentinian naval training vessel, the RAA Libertad, uh, when it was imported in Timor in Ghana. Uh, the judgment, judgment uh, uh, there, there, there was a, an, a, the, the bondholders obtained an order from the Accra High Court, uh, which was... Uh, to, to enforce a, a US judgment that they obtained against Argentina. And the order was really obtained on the basis of a very wide waiver contained in Argentina's bond uh, documents. If you want to know what the waiver says, you can look at my EGIL talk blog post on this, which reproduces it. Um, now, Argentina initiated arbitration proceedings against Ghana under uh, Annex 7 of the 1982 UN Convention on Law of the Sea, and then it requested the International Tribunal on Law of the Sea prescribe provisional measures pending the establishment of the arbitral tribunal. And, and the tribunal did so, and it ordered the release of the vessel. Now, I think on rather shaky jurisdictional grounds, but let's not go into that. What is significant is that the existence of the waiver appeared irrelevant to at the tribunal's decision. It didn't really uh, address the issue at all. Argentina had argued that any waiver to be effective must be specific as to warships. Uh, so one might assume that the, the tribunal simply accepted this argument. Um, but one might conversely consider that the tribunal simply thought they didn't need to address the issue, the question, in order to determine whether it had a prima facie jurisdiction, which was the test for the prescription of provisional measures. So maybe not too much uh, should be read, uh, should be implied from the order. Argentina's argument, however, was the same as we've, as we've seen made by states with regard to waivers of immunity from execution as they apply to state-owned cultural property. As, as a side note, I should say, Argentina was successful also in obtaining an order from, for declaratory relief uh, from um, District Judge Alsop in the dis US District Court of the Northern District of California, stating that Argentina's presidential jet enjoyed immunity from execution, despite, uh, despite the existence of the same waiver. Uh, but that's really uh, derived from the, from the specificities, specificities of the uh, US Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, so I won't go there. Um, but also, the argument is also similar uh, in form to that made successfully before a number of national courts in response to creditors' attempts to attach embassy bank accounts. Now, with regard to embassy bank accounts, the similarity in form is said to mark a difference in content. That any waiver must be specific to embassy bank accounts 
to be affected has been just at the requirement that any waiver must be specific to embassy bank accounts to be affected has been justified on the basis that they benefit not only from state immunity but also from some other diplomatic immunity. So that waiver of one form of immunity does not necessarily imply a waiver from the other. This, for example, was what the French Court of Cassation said at one time. Uh, but the 1961 Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations doesn't provide for such a waiver. And if it's accepted that embassy bank accounts uh, used for the purposes of the diplomatic mission are used for government non-commercial purposes, uh, then they are immune in any case from attachment. So it's unclear why this additional immunity would be required. What, I th what seems to be occurring in all three cases, uh, embassy bank accounts, uh, military assets, state-owned cultural property, is that there's an attempt going on to tighten the rules concerning waiver of immunity from execution by, requ uh, by requiring that in order to apply particular in order for the waiver to apply to particular forms of state-owned property, it must be both express and specific. Now, I think opinions vary about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. For what it's worth, I don't think that's necessarily objectionable per se. I think there are good reasons why embassy bank accounts, military assets, state-owned cultural property should not lose their immunity from execution because of some government's government's department's exception, acceptance of a generally worded waiver. Uh, I'm happy here to get away from the idea that the state is an entity with a single will. Not all bureaucracies work efficiently. And when the consequences of failure of, of coordination threaten important state functions, I'm willing to give, give, it, give the benefit of the doubt, not for the government's sake, uh, but for that of the community which it purports to represent. And to return to the status of state-owned cultural property, there I think the rule can be justified on the basis that the state really acts as a custodian so that such property is in, gen in general inalienable. That's an idea with deep roots in national constitutional traditions. You can indeed tr trace it back to Roman law. Uh, and I think it also comports with uh, contemporary international law ideas concerning uh, people's rights to self-determination. Anyway, I'm not going to go further down that road, uh, at least not now. To conclude, uh, what I hope I've shown is that although inroads have been made into state immunity from jurisdiction, although they've by no means gone as far as some activists would like, as we all know, uh, matters are, are different regarding immunity of state-owned property from execution. And this is particularly the case with regard to state-owned cultural property, where the law may be becoming more, not less restrictive. And I'll end there. Thank you.